welcome back to season two. Season two? I'm not sure if last year really counted as a season. But welcome back to an NFL Guide to Team Building. I'm Mason LeBeau, and I'm pretty excited to get back to this as I got a pretty solid start last year with my Stafford and Lynch 49ers episodes. And I have a lot more in store for this upcoming season. If you haven't heard those episodes yet, I'd highly recommend listening to them. I thought they turned out pretty good, and I'm hoping to do a lot more of that as we get going. Now, to begin this season, I thought it'd be a good idea to take a look back at last year's Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and see how that team was built as a whole which is a little bit different than what I normally do, because usually I'll be looking at the head team builder, usually the general manager, and seeing what they did in their tenure and seeing their trends and tendencies. But in this time, we're going to see this this team transcend just the recent general manager, mostly. I feel like in a lot of cases that's going to be the case, but in this time, it was only a couple seasons before Jason Light showed up, so that's slightly the case here. So to begin, we're going to go through each year since the first member of the Super Bowl team was drafted and see what the Buccaneers did to acquire that player that would eventually contribute to the Super Bowl team. And I got to 36. There are 36 contributing members of the Super Bowl Bucks that we are going to go through and see how their situation, how the Buccaneers situation led to them acquiring that player, how long that player stayed, what they went through, and we're going to see all the trends and tendencies at the end that occurred over time. So to start the story of the 2020 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, we need to start nearly a decade ago in 2012. As always, I'm going to have a guest on to help me talk about the team, someone who writes for the team or has maybe been a really good fan of them for a few years. And in this case, I talked to David Harrison. He's the lead writer at Bucks Nation, their SB Nation site, and also the podcast co-host for Locked on Bucks. Awesome. Okay. Again, David, thank you so much for taking your time and joining me here. I really look forward to see the insight you have on this. And uh, if you just want to get started by uh, letting everyone know who you are, what you do, where you're at, feel free. Uh, yeah. So I'm David Harrison, uh, one of the co-hosts of the Locked on Bucks podcast, a uh, five-day-a-week podcast covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the Locked on Network. Uh, also write for BucksNation.com, part of SB Nation. been covering the Buccaneers for various outlets over the last seven seasons or so. 2012, Greg Schiano is hired as the new head coach after a three-year stint with Raheem Morris. Their first-round picks are Doug Martin and Mark Barron, and Mark Barron spends about a good three years in Tampa Bay, uh, and he sticks around the NFL for a while, but he wasn't quite worth the number seven overall pick. And Doug Martin has a very up-and-down career, but he starts with a 1,400-yard season as a rookie. He just kind of struggles to stay healthy after that. But what really made this draft was neither of those players, but their next pick. And here's the call. With the 58th pick in the 2012 NFL Draft, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Levante David, linebacker, Nebraska. Buccaneers are having, I think, the best draft of anybody. This kid here, Levante David, Miami Northwestern High School, went to junior college, shows up in Nebraska. Everybody says he's too short, you're not big enough. Find the guy with the ball and you'll find Levante David. He makes plays all over the field. Great lateral playmaking ability. I've seen him as a good blitzer, good take on strength. He can cover backs out of the backfield. I saw him cover the Michigan State receivers in no back situations. This kid is a outstanding football player. He eats, sleeps, breathes football. Put him and Mark Barron in the huddle together. Way to go, Buccaneers. You added two outstanding defensive players. I really like Levante Davis. John, I said this week, you reminded me a lot of Derrick Brooks. You know Derrick Brooks better than anybody. Did you see any of that on film? I don't compare people to Derrick Brooks, but Levante David has a lot of similar traits. He's not real tall. He's slippery, instinctive, passionate every snap. 
Don't take him off the field. He'll impact this franchise. They need help desperately at linebacker. Johnny is one of my top 25 players. They put that big board together on ESPN.com starting in August all the way through the year. Levante David was in the top 25. So you're talking about getting this kid at 57? Tampa Bay, I agree with you, John. Barron, Doug Martin, Levante David, they're football players. As you can probably tell, the Bucks didn't quite have the best draft that year, but on a trade-up, they did land their defensive leader and member number one of the champion Buccaneers, Nebraska linebacker Levante David. And he's only gone on to be a three-time All-Pro, uh, six seasons playing all 16 games, and he's only missed seven career games thus far into his nine-year career, and just a complete centerpiece for the Buccaneers' defense. He actually recently returned to Nebraska to get his BS in criminology and criminal justice, and he only fell to the second round more or less due to size concerns, but he was still plenty talented enough to be considered a decent day two pick, and he clearly paid off greatly for the Buccaneers. And that's really all that happened in 2012. They went 7-9, and nine. they have a pretty mediocre year, some talent, some not, but I think the story of this team really starts in 2013. 2013, the head coach is still Greg Schiano. The offensive coordinator is Mike Sullivan, defensive coordinator Bill Sheridan, and this would be the last year with their former general manager, Mark Dominic. Rondé Barber would retire, and he played in Tampa Bay from 1996 to 2012, so a 16-year career. So this really is a good turning point for what the Buccaneers would be for most of the rest of the decade. Josh Freeman starts the year, and he was a former first-round pick, 17th overall, but throughout the season he would end up being benched for Mike Glennon, who was a rookie this season in the third round, pick 73, and obviously this was not a win-lose situ win situation in any case. This is also the season where they have an MRSA breakout, MRSA outbreak. Carl Nix and Lawrence Tynes were infected over the summer, and that kind of spread through the locker room and caused concerns. Pretty minor considering what we see uh, outbreaks as today, but it was a big deal in 2013. And some pretty notable moves this team made. First off, sending a cornerback Aqib Tlaib to the Patriots. Obviously a move that didn't work out so great for them in the long term. And they also trade for cornerback Darrell Rivas. So they send the 13th overall pick in the first round to the New York Jets for Darrell Rivas. And if you're unaware, listening well in the future, Darrell Rivas is a player, maybe not quite in his prime, but still mostly in it as he kind of enters his twilight, but still an absurdly talented player and one of the greatest cornerbacks of all time. And the Buccaneers find a way to invest a huge asset into him and completely underutilize him for the entire year. Probably the worst year of Rivas' career, and that says a lot because he had been absolutely incredible before, and he ended up having some very good years going forward. So a couple of mismanaged players on this roster sending a longer-term option and to leave away to the Patriots, and also trading for Rivas, who they would get rid of the year after. Other players notably on this roster is wide receiver Vincent Jackson, tackle Donald Penn, defensive tackle Gerald McCoy, and as previously mentioned, running back Doug Martin. So there's some talent on this team, but just not enough, and the Greg Schiano thing really wasn't working out. They ultimately go 4-12, and but they do use their creamsicle jerseys this year, which was awesome, maybe a small win, maybe the wrong year to use them. And they almost make it out of the season without any help going toward the Super Bowl team. It's almost a useless season in Buccaneers lore. However, they did snag one player that would end up making that team, and maybe not someone you would expect. In the fourth round, at pick 126, out of Michigan State, they would select defensive end William Golston. Brother of Vernon Golston, a former sixth overall pick, William was a two-time All-Big Ten player and a Big Ten champ back in 2010, and they actually got him with the pick they got back in the Aqib Tlaib trade, so somehow that trade kind of ended up working out for them. William Golston has never played less than 12 games in a season and has been a key rotational player for pretty much nine straight years, and in this recent playoff run, he played in all four games, so he ended up being a pretty important part of the larger Buccaneers picture. 
So just like that, we have two key defensive players gained in two seasons nearly a decade ago in William Golston and Levante David. You know, for it being two full years and they only getting this much out of this, it's a start. So 2014, the Buccaneers hire head coach Lovey Smith because, again, Greg Schiano in just two seasons managed to lose the locker room and not improve the team. So they move on from him pretty quickly. That said, Lovey Smith wants to bring back that Tampa 2 base defense of old, and that wouldn't be a great decision. But this is where another important piece falls. This ends up being a pretty important offseason for the uh, Buccaneers. Also out is general manager Mark Dominic. Also notable because the team is now under new ownership as owner Malcolm Glazer died the previous season, during the season, and his sons are now in control of the team. In at general manager is now Jason Light, who's been working up the exec ladder since about 1995 and was most recently with the Cardinals. This is important because that means only Levante David and William Golston are inherited pieces of the future Super Bowl roster. Everything else would be built under Jason Light. Before you even like really dive into it, what's your general uh, ideas of how Jason Licht is as a uh, team builder? I think Jason Jason has a really good grasp of what he thinks that players are capable of doing uh, and and what they're what they're capable of. I think the disconnect between Jason Light and and the former head coaches that he had before bringing in Bruce Arians is it seems to me from the outside looking in that there just kind of seemed to be a little bit of a disconnect between what uh, the head coaches and then coaching staff specifically were wanting to do and the types of players that were going to fit those types. You know, when he, when he first comes in really, uh, I, I don't want to diminish his role too much, but really it's Lovey Smith's show. Like Lovey mm-hmm. Smith is, it, it's his control. He's, he's bringing in the guys on the roster. You see a lot of former bears players that played under Lovey uh, back in Chicago, come into Tampa and, and join the organization so Jason, you know, he's got influence. Obviously, he's running the scouting program and managing the scouts and all that stuff. But really, at the end of the day, his position as a GM in the NFL, not quite as extensive as a lot of people kind of would assume it would be. And, and quite honestly, at the time, a lot of people gave him some of the blame that maybe uh, shouldn't have. And then you kind of see that transfer over to Dirk Cutter. But at the same time, it doesn't appear that Jason and Dirk kind of have the same blueprint for how they want to build. Wait, and then you see the arrival of Bruce Arians and really to me that's the first time that Jason Light has had a head, had a head coach where one Jason was very clearly in his general manager role and two the head coach and the GM were married in their vision for what the team should be you see them adopt the 3-4 defense Vita Vea moves to the nose Will Golston goes uh, from also being an interior defensive lineman in a 4-3 to a 3-4 edge when you look at Jason's work it really is you have to kind of look through the phases of his time as a GM and just understand what his role was, how much control he really had, and his and where his influence really takes place because then you see what happens when everything clicks and the GM, the head coach, have the same vision. And now all of a sudden these players, even even guys like Levant or uh, like Don, Donovan Smith, who is a left tackle, and you kind of think, well, left tackle – how scheme dependent is a left tackle really well again the responsibilities duties how long you're asking somebody to block things like that are going to matter in in the scheme so really you guys kind of see it holistically the players that jason light bring in as much as they didn't fit some of the other coaches that he was working with they really fit the first coach he actually hired and he makes some pretty decent sized moves to get started that starts with signing quarterback josh mccown and cornerback ultron verner trading for Patriots guard Logan Mankins, and cutting Darrell Revis. So, pretty big moves to get started. However, only one move this offseason would really last until the Super Bowl. However, you could make an argument that his biggest move this season would probably be his first pick. And with the seventh overall pick that season, 
the Buccaneers. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Mike Evans, wide receiver, Texas A&M. So Mike Evans out of Texas A&M is going to join Vincent Jackson. Okay. Wow. And the aerial attack for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The bigger wide receivers that can play outside the numbers and in the red zone. And even if they're covered up, quarterbacks are throwing the ball up in the air. And the buzzword now is catching radius. What does a player have as a catching radius? He's six foot five. He's 231 pounds. He's got 35 inch arms and he jumps 37 inches. So paired with Vincent Jackson, it's going to be like basketball on grass. <laughs> Throw the ball up. Josh McCown last year, 13 touchdowns, one interception in eight games in Chicago. I think he's going to have some fun. Evans was an insane six foot five, 230 pound wide receiver, was still a 4 5 3 40 time, and most notably played with Johnny Menzel at Texas AM. Like David, Evans would go on to be an incredibly reliable player over these past eight years, playing in 16 games in three seasons, but never missing more than three games in a year, and always, literally every season, going over 1,000 yards. Also, like David, the 2020 Super Bowl run would be their only playoff experience to that point. So as member number three, also incredibly important. But wait, there's also a very sneaky pickup at member number four this offseason. And of all people, they would be an undrafted free agent and out of Harvard, also a tight end, a Harvard tight end, Cameron Bray, playing a rotational role for the offense for the Buccaneers for about eight seasons now, essentially acting as the William Golston of the offense. He would end up with three catches in Super Bowl 55, and most importantly, was on the receiving end of the Vince Lombardi Trophy when Tom Brady threw it across boats over open water in the city celebration. So, that's fun. Anyway, things got worse before they would get better, and the Buccaneers go 2-14 and 14 this season. I think it was around this time they also switched to the alarm clock jersey, so it was literally and metaphorically pretty ugly. The Jameis Winston-Marcus Mariota debate of the 2015 draft was certainly a fun one, but the correct answer was neither, unfortunately. Both solid quarterbacks that would stick around and definitely look the part for a little bit, but neither were franchise guys. But the timing of this pick cannot be understated. Had Jason Light in his second year opted to wait on a quarterback, who knows how their history turns out. Because again, Jameis Winston being, you know, solid, to put it simply, led him to being the starting quarterback of the Buccaneers for the next five seasons. So a few years of development, a couple more of seeing maybe he could turn it around and prove, he just really never does. So after his 30-for-30 campaign of 2019 and no noticeable improvement and missing the playoffs yet again, the Buccaneers finally move on just in time to get in on Tom Brady's free agency. Again, this lines up just so well for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because Winston's mediocrity, but you know, upside, kept letting the Buccaneers develop the roster without having to search for a quarterback. But his contract running up right when Brady forces his way out of New England, it was just perfect timing for both parties. So even though Winston wasn't a direct part of the Super Bowl 55 team, I think he is a very important piece and a very direct core component of what would make that team. So between a second awesome Doug Martin season, other reasonable upgrades, and Jameis Winston being fairly reasonably good for a young quarterback in his first two seasons, the Buccaneers improved to 6-10. and 10. This draft is actually pretty influential outside of Winston himself. Two core pieces of the Super Bowl roster are drafted in the second round this year. What would you classify as the most important draft class or offseason in terms of building the uh, 
Super Bowl roster if you had to choose one that kind of stood mm. out amongst the rest? Yeah, that's that's hard. I'm gonna have to go with 2015. If you if you have okay. to pick one, I'm gonna go with 2015. But really, you look up and down the roster, and there are just there are some incredibly key players that this team added through the Absolutely. draft, uh, and and they and they did it in a way that really allowed them to build the roster uh, very fluidly and, and intelligently, honestly. But if I if I have to pick one, it's gonna be 2015, only because you get Donovan Smith, you get Ali Marpet in the 2015 NFL draft. Granted, you bring them in and ideally to work with Jameis Winston and to kind of form a young offensive line, part of a young offensive line that's going to grow with your quarterback that'll give you kind of a stable unit uh, for years to come. Obviously, the Jameis Winston part of that that equation doesn't work out, but here you have Donovan Smith and Ali Marpet all these years later. Uh, multiple contracts, you know, and now they're Super Bowl champions. Now they're working together. And really, they've gone through and stabilized the left side that offensive line and when you take it a, an extra step when you look at Ali Marpet really Ali Marpet might be the crown jewel of every player that that Jason Light has ever drafted even though Mike Evans is the one you know breaking Randy Moss's co- uh, uh, records and, and all the and Donovan Smith is playing the second most important you know position at least on the offense and on the entire team Ali Marpet comes in and starts his career as a right guard that's that's where he comes in and then out of necessity they eventually move him to center then they bring in Ryan Jensen and say, okay, well, now we've got a, an NFL caliber, you know, Pro Bowl caliber type of center, so where can we move Allie? Then they move Allie to the left side. When they moved Allie to the left, Donovan Smith really was struggling as a left tackle. And what I think what the Buccaneers noticed is that his running mate there on the left side at the left guard position was never quite as solid as maybe they wanted them to be. So you move Allie over there to the left side of the offensive line and almost instantly start seeing Allie Marpet's presence on the left side of the offensive line really start to stabilize Donovan Smith's efforts. And now Donovan maybe at times was a little bit worried about compensating for a partner to the right side of him in that left guard position, but now can really just kind of focus on his assignment, what he's supposed to do, knowing that he's got a Pro Bowl caliber left guard uh, running mate playing right beside him. And really that's helped them build what's turned out to be a very solid part of their team. Both starting linemen for the Buccaneers over the next six years, both starters in the playoffs and Super Bowl. Smith has been flirting as a starting left tackle, but never has been bad enough to lose his job nor need to be replaced. Marpet, on the other hand, is a true fringe all-pro level player, and both would lock down the left side for years to come and be members number 5 and 6 acquired of the future Super Bowl team. Also worth mentioning, they would draft LSU linebacker Quan Alexander in the fourth round, an impactful athletic linebacker who just couldn't stay healthy, forcing the Bucks to move on. But short-term and long-term, very key offseason for the Buccaneers. 2016, and uh, the Buccaneers do improve. They are now 9-7, and seven, so not bad. Again, Jameis Winston is pretty good in his second year, as the roster is slowly getting better around him. But it's members number 1 and 3 finally breaking out into those excellent players. Levante David finally gets his recognition as an all-pro player, and just by year 2, Mike Evans joins him as well. It's also weird not to talk about Gerald McCoy much because he's probably the best Buccaneer of the 2010s and he too is the third All-Pro for this team this year and he just missed out on that Super Bowl by two seasons. So even though he got hurt in 2020, it's a shame that his team couldn't carry him to a championship after all the carrying he had done himself. Anyway, Lovey Smith was fired after that last season, so now in a head coach is Dirk Coder. Offensive coordinator is Todd Munkin, and defensive coordinator is Mike Smith. This is the second coaching staff hired by general manager Jason Light. And for as impactful and as important as the 2015 draft was for Tampa Bay, 2016 is equally disastrous and really is what sets this team back for pretty much the rest of the decade. 
And when you when you look at the 2016 draft clash for the Buccaneers, it's obviously one you'd rather forget. But uh, I mean, if we look at this through kind of a, an honest scope, uh, six round draft picks, Devontae Bond and Danny Vitale, really, if you get anything more than special teams contributor out of them, then that's considered a success. They both yeah. ended up really just that's really all you got out of them. Devontae Bond. I mean, he's gotten he he received some snaps. I can't tell you exactly how many snaps. I know uh, that he played 30, 30 something games for the Buccaneers uh, in total or in the NFL in total. So, I mean. Again, it's a six-round pick. You don't really call a six-round pick a bust. Fifth-round pick, Caleb Benenock. You know, Caleb was never going to be a full-time starter in the NFL or an all-pro caliber, Pro Bowl caliber uh, type, of, type of guy. Roberto Guaya was just a terrible pick from the jump. I don't know uh, where Jason – that right there, like, if you're Jason Light, you just got to wear that thing and you just got to <laughs> own it and you just got to make it work with the Ew. rest of the outfit because there's no real – uh, explanation for it. I understand he had some he had some records in the NCAA I think it like made the most field goals or oh, yeah. technically was the most accurate kicker in history but when you go back and honestly in the build-up to the draft there were people talking about this when you go back and look at his collegiate kicks and you start looking at how many of them kind of barely made it inside the NCAA goalpost and you start taking those into account you start factoring in those as misses because in the NFL they would be misses uh, that and then you basically see what you got out of Roberto Aguayo in the NFL is a guy that really he can get it between the goalposts when you're in college because they're wider. But once you get to the league and they're a little bit closer together, it's just not going to happen. Noah Spence is one of those guys uh, that I was really excited about coming out of this draft class. But my concern with him from the day he was drafted, the fact that at the time the Buccaneers ran a 4-3 defense, Noah Spence was expected to come in there and be a 4-3 uh, down lineman defensive end, hand in the dirt. And I just didn't feel like that's where he was going to make the most money in his career. That's even starting to look at him as a stand-up linebacker. He's been through so many injuries, uh, and and his body has been through so many different transformations. Honestly, I would highly doubt that Noah Spencer even had had faith and confidence in NFL coaches at that point. It's really an, an, an a disappointing story, and I feel like if Noah Spence ends up in a 3-4 system where he's a stand-up outside linebacker, that we're talking about a much different career path for him not saying he would have been you know an all pro or a future hall of famer necessarily but i think you have a much different career path if he's not asked to play in a four three scheme versus a three four and then for vernon hargraves i can't lie to you i i wasn't i wasn't in support of the pick in the first place i didn't think that his stock should have been where it was uh, in the first place outside of him being a, a, a homegrown tampa you know talent um i really didn't see much in that throughout his career i didn't see much through that i remember actually one weekend i think they were in uh, buffalo and I was having dinner with some some people from inside the organization. And I specifically said, I said, look, I, I just don't feel like Vernon Hargraves is going to be an outside linebacker or outside cornerback perimeter defender in the National Football sure. League. That if he's not in the slot, you know, he really doesn't have a whole lot of value. Um, you know, we had a conversation and lo and behold, against the Buffalo Bills, they actually play him in the slot. I am not saying, let me clarify, I'm not saying that they did that because <laughs> I said anything to anybody. That is not how that went down. That is not at all what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that game just so happens, a coincidence happens that they play him inside. He has one of his best games in the National Football League. And honestly, a lot of people were kind of like, well, voila, maybe this is where Vernon Hargraves goes. I think the problem at that point is, from a coaching perspective, I think a lot of people have the opinion of, you don't use a first-round draft pick as a slot cornerback. Right. And they essentially force him back to the outside. Uh, again, by the time Todd Bowles gets in there, I mean, they, they tried to work with him a little bit uh, w with him in Tampa with Todd Bowles and those guys. But I think by that time, Vernon, again, you just, you know, players get burned by coaching staffs. And, and once a player loses trust in coaches, it's kind of hard to regain that. And yeah. honestly, when he went to Houston, I said, OK, maybe now they'll work him inside. Uh, I think now what he's in Cincinnati, I think, or something. And, and I was like, maybe now they'll so. work him inside. 
Yeah, everybody can. I, for some reason, everybody insists on working Vernon Hargraves as a perimeter defender, and it just hasn't worked so far. But the few times he's worked in the slot, it's actually gone pretty well. So I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's still a chance for VH three, but uh, no love lost there. <laughs> also, so far we don't have a free agent signing that makes it to the Super Bowl, and this free agency is no different. This included guard J.R. Sweezy, defensive end Robert Ayers, and cornerback Brent Grimes. None really stick around to make an impact except for Grimes, who does have a good couple of years, but he's in his 10th season at the time of the signing and would retire after 2018, so he also wouldn't quite make it. The Buccaneers almost come out of this season empty-handed, but they just happened upon North Carolina Central defensive back Ryan Smith in the fourth round. I almost didn't include Smith as a key player, but after enough digging to find out, he was. The Buccaneers happened to re-sign him to a one-year deal after his rookie contract ran up that just allowed him to be a 2020 season member of the Buccaneers as a key backup defensive back, playing around 300 snaps, but more importantly was the leading special teams contributor, playing the highest percentage of special team snaps on the team. Smith is member number 7, and with 5 years since that first 2012 season, we now have 7 players of the future Super Bowl roster, with at least 1 being drafted each year. 2017, and we're going to start with poor second round pick from this offseason, Justin Evans, who was waived just a month and a half before the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl. I'm sure he got a ring, but it sucks that he was so close and didn't get to contribute or at least even be on the roster when it happened. Now this is an important year because all you had to do was make it through your rookie contract to be on the Super Bowl winning team. So we're just four seasons out now from that championship. Yet hardly any acquisitions from this year actually made it. The free agent signings are quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, wide receiver Deshaun Jackson, defensive tackle Chris Baker, safety J.J. Wilcox, and safety T.J. Ward. So we're still without a free agent signing making it to that 2020 team. The team would also say goodbye to the quote-unquote Mike Glennon era, and wide receiver Vincent Jackson, acquired in that first year of 2012, would also retire. May he rest in peace. Only one player from this offseason would make it, and unfortunately that's not first-round pick, Tight end out of Alabama, O.J. Howard. Just to preface, 2017 was the first year a young Mason really got into the draft process. I'd always been interested in him before, but this is the year I took it seriously for the first time. And I loved O.J. Howard as a prospect. Unfortunately, he's just been pretty underwhelming since he was taken 19th overall. Season highs of 34 receptions and 565 yards in his first at least five years, he never really developed into that receiving threat that he was supposed to be. Even more so, he suffered a torn Achilles early in the 2020 season, finishing with just 11 receptions on the year. So I don't know if this is cruel or not, but for his middling career impact and injury in 2020, I didn't count Howard as a contributor toward this team. On the other side, at pick 84, Tampa also selected Penn State wide receiver Chris Godwin, making him member number 8 of the Super Bowl team. Godwin wasn't very impactful in his first two seasons, but he developed excellently and broke out in 2019 with a 1,300-yard and 9-touchdown season, proving to pair excellently with Mike Evans. He'd followed that up with another good year in 2020 and just ended up being a very important player in the playoff run and just in general. However, 2017 is a very forgettable season for the Buccaneers that kind of just regressed and ended up finishing 5-11. 2018 doesn't go much better as they finish 5-11 again. Dirk Cutter is now coaching for his job, and the result is Jameis Winston and Ryan Fitzpatrick essentially splitting the year and repeatedly getting benched for each other, but offering pretty much the same product. Like seriously, they have similar numbers throughout the year and similar playstyles even, so neither offered a substantial advantage over the other. 
Cutter is fired at the end of the season, as is most of his staff, and general manager Jason Light is officially going to be feeling the pressure to make a good hire this time around. Since he took over in 2014, the Buccaneers have gone 27-53 and 53 over five years, with only one of them being above 500. Yet we're only three seasons out from the Super Bowl win, despite this team being in a rather hopeless spot at the moment. I just wanted to point this out because as something I'll start to say a lot, three years is a lifetime in the NFL. Now despite that being the final year of that regime, this would be the offseason where the gates officially break loose. We only have eight members of the Super Bowl team on the roster before the offseason, and we're about to double that. So yes, we will be keeping track of them in order. First, free agency. The muscle hamster era is officially over as Doug Martin is released one year after signing a big extension. Finally, free agents would start to make an impact on the future team, and the first one is huge. On March 19th, it's center Ryan Jensen, who spent his rookie contract in Baltimore and then was allowed to walk in free agency. Tampa Bay would jump on that and sign him to a four-year, $42 million deal with half of it guaranteed, making him the highest paid center in the league, and he pretty much just lived up to that billing. The ever-lovable and versatile Ali Marpet would move to left guard to facilitate this move, and like that, the Buccaneers have the entire left side of their offensive line set. Next, they'd actually swing a trade. On March 22nd, just three days later, they'd send their third-round pick and swap fourths for the Giants for edge defender Jason Pierre-Paul, also inheriting his four-year $62 million deal that he had just signed with New York a year prior. Together, they would become members 9 and 10. Then Jason Light would nail a draft after the previous two weren't stellar. This started with first-round pick defensive tackle Vita Vea, a somewhat controversial pick at the time for skipping on local defensive back Derwin James out of FSU. Now, Vea did struggle with an ankle injury and some scheme issues as a rookie, but he never looked back and became an all-pro caliber and a very important building piece for the whole Buccaneers defense and just recently signed a huge extension this last offseason, keeping him in Tampa Bay long-term. Next was USC running back Ronald Jones II at pick 38 in the second round. Following the 2020 season, Leonard Fournette would really take the lead role in the backfield, as he did in the playoffs of the Super Bowl run, but throughout the season, it was really Jones leading the backfield, outgaining Fournette on the ground 978 yards to 367. In fact, Jones led the entire offense in scrimmage yards over the regular season by a fairly clean margin. He also ended up with 61 yards in the Super Bowl itself, so really, Jones was a far more impactful player than he may get remembered for, and he's member number 12. Member number 13, also out of the second round, Auburn cornerback Carlton Davis at pick 63. The Bucks actually double-dipped at this spot after somehow getting three second-round selections, and first they had gone MJ Store out of UNC, but he'd be cut before the 2020 season. It'd be their next selection in Davis, who would be an excellent find and a crucial defender for the Super Bowl team, and maybe more importantly, the first member of the team's secondary as member 13. Though the next defensive back wouldn't be too far behind, and that'd be Pittsburgh safety Jordan Whitehead in the fourth round, but that's only after they took Humboldt's offensive lineman Alex Kappa in the third. Now Kappa was drafted as a tackle, but he'd end up being the team's starting right guard and have the second highest snap count of that 2020 team. And that's about it, but shout out to wide receiver Justin Watson, who's the team's next pick in the fifth round, who is still on their team, he just wasn't quite productive enough for me to count him on this list. Also, after starting the season with the Colts, defensive tackle Raheem Nunez-Rochez was cut and then signed by Tampa Bay on October 2nd. During 2020, he'd play almost 500 snaps and start 11 games, so aside William Golston, 
one of the core rotational contributors on the defensive line. So kudos to Jason Light with his back starting to get up against the wall. He absolutely crushed this offseason in finding members 11 through 15 in the draft alone, but seven total contributing members in just one offseason. But none of that helped right away. They still went 5-11, and Dirk Cutter is fired after the season. Member 18 might be the most crucial, or at least the second most crucial member of the Super Bowl team. But Tampa Bay actually just narrowly signed member 17 first, and that being the signing of long snapper Zach Triner on January 2nd to a futures contract. And yes, he would officially make the team in training camp, be the long snapper for all 16 regular season games, and four playoff games. No special teams is operating without a long snapper, so yes, Triner is absolutely an important member of this team. That said, his signing may have been a bit overshadowed because six days later, Jason Light would agree to terms with former Arizona Cardinals head coach Bruce Arians. Arians got pretty close to a Super Bowl with them in 2015 after an NFC Championship game run after a very successful regular season, but they couldn't stand up to a powerhouse Panthers team. Arians would then retire after the 17th season, take a year off, and then come back in 2019 to be with the Bucks. But this required a trade since he was still technically under contract with the Cardinals, so the team swapped a 7th for a 6th and got it done. So easy enough. And with him, he would bring Byron Leftwich, former longtime Jaguars quarterback, to be his offensive coordinator. He also brought Todd Bowles to be the defensive coordinator. And Bowles had spent time on Arian's staff in Arizona before accepting the Jets' head coaching job, where he'd be for four years. I could list them as individual members here because, obviously, they were all pretty vital. But then we'd be getting into this messy area of including certain coaching staff and some not. And there's just a lot of coaches on any given team. So we're all kind of lumping them in together with Arians as the coaching staff as member 18. Uh, bringing in Bruce Arians. I think that's the the single most important move. I think when you look across the spectrum of, of everything they've got going, you know, Bruce Arians is, is a player's coach to a certain extent. But he's the kind of guy that can go out there and. We've, we've heard him do it. We've heard him call out Tom Brady in press conferences, and he can get away with that because they, the, the players also know and understand that if he's doing it, he's doing it for a reason. It's not to, uh, you know, it's not to shirk responsibility off of himself or to, to, to cast blame where it's not necessarily uh, deserved. It's, it's to either uh, inspire someone, challenge someone to rise above the level of play they've been currently doing. And he also, they also know that he is going to allow them to become creators of, of, of the product, right? So, uh, you always look at quarterbacks and, and wins or losses are not quarterback stats yet. What do we always do? We always talk about how many games a quarterback has won in their NFL career. Well, that's that's all fine and good. But when you look at some other uh, rosters and some other teams out there around the NFL, not every coach allows the quarterback to have the, the kind of say and influence on the offense like a guy like Bruce Arians does. And, and I look across the NFC South and Sean Payton is another great uh, example. When Sean and, and Drew Brees met up in New Orleans, one of the biggest things that made Drew Brees want to work with Coach Payton is that they basically were going to build the offense together. So now you have a quarterback that's out on the field. Not only is he executing the scheme because he's a professional, he's a quarterback, he wants to win the game, but he's executing the scheme because he it's 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 part of him, right? He has ingredient, he has his hands in the final product. So you have investment, I think, when you have that type of situation. And, and Coach Arians going back all the way to his days as coordinator and often and assistant coaches and all that stuff, he's always been somebody who believed that the quarterback influence and what happens on the field you talked about with Peyton Manning Andrew Luck uh, going all the way back to couch in Cleveland I mean it doesn't really matter who the quarterback is whoever it is Bruce Arians wants them to have a say and be an influence on the offense I think that makes you go out there uh, and be a little bit more inspired so just one season out from 2020 and a lot has to happen for us to get there 
So we start with a small exodus of Cutters guys and bring in players Arians prefers. Most notably out is longtime Buccaneer Gerald McCoy, and also Quan Alexander, Brent Grimes, Deshaun Jackson, and quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick. A small gesture for Jameis Winston going into his final year of his contract to prove his worth. Continuing the special teams trend, the first signing of free agency in this period is member number 19 in punter Bradley Pinion. And yeah, yeah, he's a good punter. The next guy's a big one, and one of those necessary diamonds in the rough to make a Super Bowl team. On March 15th, the Buccaneers would give a one-year prove-it deal to former Broncos edge rusher Shaquille Barrett. Now, Barrett went undrafted in 2014 and spent his rookie contract as a key rotational player for the Broncos, but never had a chance to break out behind the likes of Von Miller and Demarcus Ware, and even another first-round pick in Shane Ray. Looking for the opportunity, the Bucs gave him the chance, and wow, did he break out. He went from 14 career sacks over four years to 19 and a half in his first season as a starter in Tampa Bay. That performance had to be repeated as they'd hit him with a franchise tag, and he would play out, but they would eventually reward the former CSU Ram with a four-year, $72 million contract, half of it being guaranteed. An excellent haul for anyone, let alone a former undrafted free agent. Lastly, the immortal Nakamadong Sioux leaves LA and takes the highest bidder in Tampa Bay, signing a one-year, $9 million deal to further seal the trenches, and like that, they have their entire defensive line, from Pierre Paul, Barrett, Sue. Vea, Golston, and Nunez Roches. A few more depth guys show up, but the line is pretty much built, and this is the first complete unit of that Super Bowl team. And that does it for the larger signings. Others include wide receiver Brashad Perriman, guard Earl Watson, linebacker Dion Buchanan, but it's another good draft that really sets this team up. And first with the fifth overall pick is LSU linebacker Devin White. A player whose career has been pretty up and down, but overall, he's a pretty good player, and he really showed up in the playoffs and had an excellent postseason run, joining member number one, Levante David, as a stud linebacker duo, and now we've pretty much completed the entire front seven of the Super Bowl winning defense. Next is second-round pick cornerback Sean Murphy Bunting out of Central Michigan, another smaller player who'd step up quickly with some help from that disruptive front to be a productive young player. Furthering that trend is third-round pick Jamel Dean out of Auburn at pick 94, and then five picks later at 99, Kentucky safety Mike Edwards. Same story here with Dean, mid-round pick, quite productive early on. Edwards would be more of a rotational player and a special teams uh, contributor, but still an important piece. Also in the fourth round, pick defensive lineman Anthony Nelson, who cleared my threshold for snaps as a rotational edge rusher, who had a fair amount of defensive snaps and played in almost half of all special team snap. snaps. So that's capping off an incredibly productive draft class. A huge, huge offseason for the defense, as you may have noticed. It was only defensive players and special teamers acquired this year that would make an impact on the Super Bowl, but wow, did they fill out that side of the ball. And that trend continues when they'd also sign safety Andrew Adams in September off waivers. And hey, he would force a fumble on Derrick Henry this upcoming year, so you tell me if he deserves to be on this list. This is actually his second stint with the Buccaneers, and as of recording this, he wasn't re-signed, but he was then signed by Philly, waived by them, and then Tampa brought him back for a third time this past season. So, yeah, a rotational safety, bigger special teams contributor. The defensive trend continued until November 11th when the Buccaneers were awarded offensive guard Aaron Stinney off of waivers. Formerly an undrafted guard who spent two years with the Titans before being released, Stinney almost didn't make this list. But when starting guard Alex Kappa fractures his ankle in the wildcard game in the next season, it's Stinney who steps in and plays in the three most crucial games of the year, starts in the Super Bowl in his place, 
So yes, I think he deserves also a spot as member number 28 on this list. Similarly, late in the season, on December 19th, the Buccaneers added former Jaguar and Panther Jaden Mickens to their practice squad, where he'd eventually be signed to the active roster and be the team's starting kick returner in the Super Bowl. So maybe a bit of a stretch here, but he was technically a starter in the big game, so yeah, he's member number 29. So the core of the Buccaneers Super Bowl roster is set. We have 29 impactful players currently on this roster, but only get flashes of that during the season. The Buccaneers go 7-9, and they miss the playoffs yet again. Chris Godwin breaks out into an All-Pro, so does Shaquille Barrett, and Jameis Winston throws his infamous 30-touchdown, 30-interception season, the first in NFL history, and that makes the decision to re-sign him or not fairly easy. However, it's only one week following the end of the Buccaneers season when Tom Brady and the Patriots are upset in the wildcard round by the Tennessee Titans. 2020. First, what I want to say here is that the guy that really got screwed is offensive tackle Damar Dotson. I mean, you can only feel so bad for a guy who made $29 million in his short career, but these guys still want to win. And Dotson went undrafted in 2009, made the Buccaneers team as a rookie, and was a mainstay at that tackle position for over the next decade, starting 114 games and 138 games appeared. The guy was a constant for Tampa Bay through their worst years, and in the 2020 offseason, the team chose not to re-sign him, making him have missed out on the Super Bowl by one year. And honestly, that just kind of sucks. But moving on, and I didn't do this on purpose, in fact, it wasn't until I realized I missed Andrew Adams the first time around, who was signed the previous year, that I had to go back and fix it, and I now realize that Tom Brady is a nice, even number 30 on this team. He's member number 30, and that just really satisfies my not-actually-existent OCD, but it's still, you know, satisfying. So I suppose he's important. He signs a two-year, $50 million deal on March 20th in free agency, and Tampa Bay now has their quarterback. Okay, and finally, we got to talk about the guy that kind of really brings it all together. We try to kind of get around that and look at the team, but obviously Tom Brady probably has the biggest effect, or at least the second biggest effect, however you kind of chop it up. So um, from your perspective, tell me how the Tom Brady free agency kind of went down, because from an outside perspective... It seems like everything just really lined up. It didn't seem like there was even a big Peyton Manning style free agency where teams were just lining up. Uh, yeah. it, just, it, it, it was a lot quieter. It was a lot smoother. And they kind of just ended up in a perfect marriage, uh, just seemingly by I, maybe dumb luck or however you would phrase it. So, uh, yeah, just from your perspective, how did that offseason go down with him? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I imagine Tom really wanted to kind of get it over with as, as soon as possible. Uh, uh, as soon as he stepped off the field after throwing that pick six against Tennessee Titans uh, in the wild card round there to lose his final game as Patriots quarterback, dealing with those questions all season long. And then, again, immediately after losing a playoff game, that's the first thing you'd asked about. I imagine he just he wanted to get it over with uh, as soon as possible. And while in 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 public court, obviously, there, there wasn't a lot of, of conversation, you know, he didn't. There weren't a lot of like NFL network breaking news, looking at planes, taxiing down runways in Los Angeles and New York and Foxborough and Tampa as Tom Brady's getting ready to deboard and, and all those things. I think there's a lot more conversation to happen behind the scenes than, than what uh, is, is mostly known. And again, the legal tampering period is what it is. Um, but anybody who believes that that's all that happens is just either naive or choosing not to see uh, what actually happens behind the scenes. And that's, that's perfectly fine. But I think, I think Tom had a lot of options. Uh, I can't say for, for sure that I was the first one to say that Tom Brady to Tampa was a real possibility, but I like to think that I was one of the first ones just because it makes me feel good about myself. 
look, I mentioned it. I want to say it was like early February and mentioned Tom Brady going to Tampa. And I, and I started looking around the landscape. Uh, my own co-host of the Lots on Bucks podcast, James Jarko, good friend of mine, calling him brother. He told me I was wrong. I said, we'll see what happens. And I rub it in his face all the time. <laughs> um, listen, you, you look at Tom and, and what was he looking for? I think Tom was was looking for, and this is what I said before he even signed it, and he was looking for a more relaxed environment. He had kind of grown up under the drill sergeant, and now you want a little bit of freedom. You want a little bit of flexibility. I think he was looking for better weather, and I think he was looking for an offense. I think that was the biggest fallout with him. Say, well, you're the greatest of all time. So you should be able to get by with C-level wide receivers. We shouldn't have to bring you A's. And I kind of reinforce that. If you look at the New England Patriots and their activity shortly before Tom left, you see them try to get into trade conversations with the Houston Texans for DeAndre Hopkins, and you see them try to get into conversations to trade for Stephon Diggs. I think at the end of the day, these other teams, uh, I, I saw a report that Bill O'Brien and the Houston Texans actually took less for DeAndre Hopkins with the Arizona Cardinals than they would have gotten from New England. I think part of that is get him out of the AFC if you're the Houston Texans and you want Hopkins out of the AFC. I think the other part of that, though, too, is don't help Bill Belichick. Yeah. You, know I mean? you don't want to make continue uh, the Patriots. So, And then Stephon Diggs obviously ends up in Buffalo. So I think you see the New England Patriots kind of saying, oh, man, he's serious, and kind of last-ditch last, last ditch effort scramble to try to get some weapons. Say, hey, Tommy, look, look what we're doing for you. Stick around, and we'll do it. And I think it was too little too late. I, for one, it didn't work. They didn't get anybody, so – that's part of the problem. And two, it was too little too late. Um, I know a lot of people talked about Los Angeles, right? But you look at Los Angeles and what they were doing. They didn't have the weapons. Keenan Allen likes to say he's better than Mike Evans and all that stuff. It is what it is. But at the end of the day, I think it's it's negotiable. But the, the Chargers didn't have, you know, a Chris Godwin. The Chargers didn't have an O.J. Howard, who you know at the time was looked at as one of the up-and-coming oh, yeah. tight ends in the National Football League. And then you look at some of the defensive pieces and you look at the coaching staff. And I don't know if you're going for a confident bravado kind of laid back, like fly by the seat of your pants coaching staff. Do you want Anthony Lynn and the Los Angeles Chargers or do you want Bruce Arians and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? I mean, it seems like an easy decision to me. A lot of people talk about New York because of the media thing. And I kind of downplayed the whole media thing. Today's world doesn't really require you to be in L.A., New York, London, Italy, you know, to be to be an influencer. So. And what I didn't know was actually the connection with his son in Florida or in, in New York, they closer to New York. So actually that part, you know, had I known that part of Tom's personal life, then that probably would have reiterated. But I, I came away from the whole ordeal feeling like I was vindicated and I'm smarter than the average bear. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, Tom just went out looking for the best case scenario for him as a guy who knows he's on the last years of his career. And he married himself to a coach who's in the last years of his career. Both of them literally have the same outlook, go all in to get as many rings as we can before we go drink bourbon and play golf for the rest of our lives. Next is another defensive back who rotated in and out and played a bunch of special team snaps in Ross Cockrell, member number 31. And that really does it for a short free agency in light and Arians who seem to be pretty content with just landing Tom Brady. And that's really mostly all you have to do, I guess. Nothing else really substantial happens until Brady talks Rob Gronkowski out of retirement. And like Arians, his former team still has the rights so they send a fourth-round pick to New England for uh, Rob Gronkowski, who now reunites with Tom Brady. This really goes to show how random the process of team building is, because in terms of dates and employment, you got Bruce Arians sandwiched right in between a long snapper and a punter, and you have Tom Brady between Jaden Mickens and Ross Cockrell. And by all means, respect to those guys, because they are real people who did have real contributions and achieved their dreams as well, but I mean, I mean come on, they're in between Tom Brady, so... Next is the draft, and man did like nail this by getting two impressive instant impact players on both sides of the ball. 
First is Iowa's offensive tackle Tristan Wirfs at 13th overall, who damn near was an all-pro as a rookie. And then they get Minnesota's safety Antoine Winfield Jr. at 45th overall, who again, incredible rookie year flying all around the backfield and through the Super Bowl. Those two rookies would be crucial players, both completing their respective unit in the offensive line and in the secondary as members 32 and 33 of this team. And to complete the special teams, Tampa Bay signed kicker Ryan Suckup as member number 34, an 11-year veteran coming off an injury-plagued year in 2019 with Tennessee. This year, he would post a solid 90% field goal percentage and go 4-for-4 four four on extra points with a field goal in the Super Bowl itself. This comes off giving up on kicker Matt Gay, the team's fifth-round pick in 2019. From there, the Bucks get a bit lucky, but that's kind of just the Tom Brady effect. Just before the season begins, the Jaguars cut former first-round pick and fourth overall pick, I believe, running back Leonard Fournette, and he would choose to sign with the Buccaneers. While Ronald Jones did most of the work in the regular season, it was Fournette who had a nice postseason run as member number 35. Now, member 36, bit of a doozy. Wide receiver Antonio Brown, who had a small connection with Tom Brady from a short stint in New England as a free agent after that whole Raiders mishap. Coming off a suspension, and despite Arian's pushback, Light said, why not, and added the wide receiver to an already very talented receiving core. Obviously, we know now, this hardly lasted a full year, as at the end of the 2021 season, Brown was released after dipping halfway through a game against the Jets. His relationship with Bruce Arians likely was never good, and debate over Brown's injury led to tempers flying, but being down two scores to the Jets, I guess we'll do that. However, he was a beneficial part of the 2020 Buccaneers, so I guess that still kind of worked out for them. Speaking of the Jets, the Buccaneers swung for a trade that would send them a 7th round pick two and a half years later for nose tackle Steve McClendon. The prized young nose tackle Vita Vea fractured his leg early in the season, and the Bucs targeted McClendon to replace his role as a, nose, as a nose defender in the middle of the season, which he did pretty well. Now, somehow, Vea still came back late in the season to help their playoff push, but McClendon shouldered a good amount of snaps while he was out and still rotated in once Vea was back, making him member 36. And then the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl. It's, it's really that easy. I gotta imagine there's plenty of podcasts or videos going through how exactly the stories of the team and how they won it and the game itself, but I mean... You know, watch the America's games. Those are those are always really good. But I was here to tell you about how the team process went, and I think that's about it. That's 36 of the core members. That's all 22 starters, the special teams, the coach, plus about 10 more important backup and rotational players. I'm sorry the cutoff had to happen somewhere, so if you're somehow a member of that Buccaneers team and I didn't list your name, I'm really sorry. Just message me, and I will publicly apologize and put you on this list. Not that that will you know, do much for you. But again, I kind of had to make the cutoff somewhere. And anyway, that's how the team was made. So let's look into some of the fun stuff and stats and about it. Now, I don't know if you guys will find this stuff as interesting, but I wanted to start with some of the cap space stuff. And that starts with Tom Brady, who had a $25 million cap hit in 2020, which was the fifth highest that year, taking about 12% of the total cap. That's just under the 13% threshold that you try to stay under when you have to pay your quarterback. Historically, a starting quarterback has not taken up more than that 13%. So Brady stays just below it, which I guess did enough to help the Buccaneers fund the rest of their team. The top paid players this season for the Buccaneers fit a very specific trend. Shaquille Barrett, an edge rusher, and Donovan Smith, their left tackle, are their second and third highest paid players respectively, carrying about 7% of the cap each, meaning the Bucs 
top paid players are what's often considered to be the three most important positions in football at quarterback, edge rusher, and tackle. Going further down, it is then Jason Pierre-Paul, Levante David, and Ryan Jensen. So we see, again, a specific trend of them spending big money on the trenches on both sides of the ball. Then you get to Rob Gronkowski and Mike Evans on their cap hit. So skill positions then come into play, but it's a little further down the list. Overall, the Bucks have 11 players counting as $5 million or more on their cap hit. They're spending at a good rate and benefiting on rookie contracts from players like Vita Vea and the entire secondary, which is where they would save most of their money. Light did also a very great job of voting dead cap, just spending under $8 million total on cut players, totaling to a little under 4% of the total cap, which is a pretty insignificant sum comparatively, especially if you look at a team like the Rams, who probably have that amount of dead cap from just one player in Jared Goff, probably a significant more amount of that. So at least the Buccaneers this year, even if they used a lot of their cap space, were actually using it. It didn't go toward players who were no longer on the team. Now let's look at the breakdown of those 36 players who were acquired, the core components of this team. Obviously, there's 53 guys on the roster throughout the year. Those, a lot of those guys are going to get swapped around. Like I said, a few of those players weren't even on the roster to begin the year. So there's going to be a lot more than just these numbers. But again, those core 36 members were acquired via the following. 19 of them were drafted. Nine of them came through free agency. Four of them were picked off either waivers or futures contracts. Three of them came from a trade, and one of them was an undrafted free agent. I mean, I expect this to be pretty common. I haven't looked at the other Super Bowl teams yet, so once we get a little bit more data on those guys, we'll see if they spent somewhere more in the draft or if they got more through trades or whatever. But off, in hindsight, or off the top of my head at least, it seems like a pretty standard breakdown of how a team would go about acquiring their players. Mostly through the draft, a lot of free agents, and then just a handful of guys filling the cracks via trade and waivers. Now, if you want to get into the draft, this is the one I think is a little bit more interesting, but I think it also makes sense considering we're only really looking at the top 36 players on the team. So top 100 picks is 15. There's 15 of those 19 players were drafted within the first three rounds in the top 100. So only four of them were drafted later than the top 100 day three pick. And the breakdown of how those players in the top 100 are even acquired is also pretty interesting. Four of them were drafted in the first round. Four of them were drafted in the third round. And then even going back to those late picks, four of them were drafted in the fourth round. So of those core 36 members, none of them came in the fifth, sixth, or seventh round. Now, obviously, there's going to be a handful of players on that roster that were drafted in those rounds. But of the main contributors, none of them came very late in the draft. And then second round is where they found most of their talent. They actually drafted seven of their members of the core competing roster in the second round. So that is where they actually found a bulk of their value. The latest player to be drafted of those 36 would actually be the second person on this team in William Golston, who's drafted in the fourth round, 126th overall. And that's all I got. Thank you guys for listening. I still haven't decided if I'll pump out another one of these after this upcoming Super Bowl is out. I hope you guys enjoyed that game. Bengals-Rams, as I record this, that game hasn't happened yet. So if you listen in the future, congratulations to the team that uh, won that. I'll either give them their own episode like this 
the week after or next year. Haven't decided, or I'll see how much time I have. But either way, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you guys are excited for the next, the rest of the season one of this show. I thought this would be a fun exercise to see how the team was kind of came together, their recent history, the Buccaneers. And I look forward to doing it again for the next Super Bowl champion. This was a crazy season. Had a lot of fun. But now that we're going to get to the offseason, that's my bread and butter. That's where I really thrive. I love seeing how the offseason process goes about up until about summer because that's when things stop happening. But I'm going to pump out a handful more of these episodes. I'm really proud of the work that went into them. So I hope you guys enjoyed. And uh, yeah, this is only technically episode three of season one of an NFL guide to team building. I got a next one coming up. It's going to be on Steve Keim and the Arizona Cardinals. Pretty crazy team uh, from the Bruce Arians hire with the Josh Rosen pick and then the Kyler Murray and Kings Cliffberry, the Cliff Kingsbury era. There's a lot to get to with them, and I got a fantastic guest for that one as well, so please check it out. I'm very excited for this season. I hope you guys enjoyed this. This is going to be a little different of an episode, so uh, we got more general manager reviews and then something a little bit different but similar after that too. I got I got big plans, so um, yeah, one more time, thank you so much to David for joining me here on this episode. Please check him out if you're interested in Buccaneers coverage whatsoever, or just check him out in general if you watch the NFL, which most of us will. And congratulations one more time to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the team of 2020 and then thank you guys for listening and i hope i get and see you guys again soon all right and that is everything i had and that was exactly what i was looking for that was incredible insight so again <laughs> david thank you so much for joining me here and uh, i really look forward to getting this out yeah absolutely i appreciate your time